0: Come on. recording already? <coughs> huh. Oh dear. Would anybody like to add to our prayers tonight? I'd like to try to slow down a little bit with prayers. Anybody? friend of yours?
1: Um, my sister's niece through marriage.
0: Okay. Maeve? Colin. Cullen. Cullen. Um, let me ask you this before we go forward. Um, I'm glad to include them in the prayers. You know my mind is going, so you, I'm, I'm glad if you will be patient enough to work with me. We can. I can continue to do it this way where I'll just ask you and you can give me the names and I'll include them, or I can make a time for you to speak them. Which would be, which would you deserve preference for this?
1: Which easier for you? Hmm.
2: You're our leader, so.
0: I'm I'm fine to do it either way. I'm 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 glad to do them because I'm glad to carry them in my heart and speak them for you. But I'm glad for you to do it if you would like to do it. Let me know Some, another time. Did you have somebody? Uh, yes, my husband My
2: husband Al is actually having back surgery on Thursday.
0: Thursday. Almost His name? Person, Al. 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 Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life from you. We would not be here except for the free gift that you offer, no necessity, was a free giving. You ask us to make of our lives a free gift. Um, There's a great cost to that because in our world um, we've got a work to do, all of us, whatever that is to offer ourselves. Strengthen us in our efforts, um, whatever that work involves um, for each of us. Um, Clear our eyes, open our ears, In all things, help us to stay beside you, to move with you, to carry you with us, um, to be sure of your presence, to have no question about it, that you are there. Um, Death can't shake that. You allow these things so that we can grow closer to you, trust in you that you will bring a good out of things um, with our help. Um, What a great honor uh, you show us ask um, for special prayers for Amy, Carrie, Matthew, Bill, Candy, Sue, Johnny Cober, um, Ken and Helen, Dan, for Maeve? Maeve, who died. Receive this young woman into your kingdom, um, forgive her her sins, um, wash them away, let her know the joy if not being with you now, of moving towards you. If there's a time in purgatory, uh, our prayers speed her. And for Al this Thursday, um, surround him with your protection. Um, let no harm come to him, please. Keep him safe. Um, help all of us quiet our hearts facing difficulties, trusting in you. Um, we offer all of these prayers in your name. Christ our Lord oh thanks thanks Um, before we start just a quick I want to as a lead in um, Fred you asked a question last time about free will and I hope I answered and I'm not sure that I did adequately but and you made a comment about Achilles and I want to go back to it you you have you always have pressing really good questions and I'm glad for them truly why are you laughing I'm serious why I am I am I am I am um, when when the other group picks up I think they'll pick up in the evening. There's a couple named Bob and Marcy and Bob is like you and I always have tough-minded questions and I try to do everything I can to get around them because to try to answer them means, you know, taking more time than we have. But Anyway, a couple of thoughts. One is you, you made this comment about free will and it's a big question. Lots of people um, are so aware of the gods coming in and out of people's, the characters' lives that they, they come away with the sense that there is no free will. I hope it's clear that there's a difference between being involved and humans not having free will. Because if you look at the actions of the characters, for the most part, nobody ch- forces them to do things. They do things and the gods intervene a lot. But, but that in itself doesn't constitute a denial of free will. And the other thing, you, you, um, you, you made um, a comment about Achilles being a flawed character, and I, I want to just take a minute with that. And there's something that I didn't do. God, and I forgot. Does anybody have a copy of the Iliad?
2: Oh, God, Robert. God. Do you? Oh, look at here. He's got
0: Thank you, Ron. Boy, my mind is going. There's something I didn't look at last week that is absolutely essential to look at before I leave this book. Thanks. Fine. Behind, behind. So, but a couple of thoughts. One is um, one of one of the most important postulates, starting positions of Saint Thomas, is that we all learn to see things as they are, to not change them to make them fit our mind. Truth, he said, is the conformity of the mind with things. And I hope it's clear from our reading, certainly from the way that I've been pushing this, you guys. I, that I believe we don't read very well generally um, and and that we don't see very well and and so often when we think we do, the Socratic dialogues are meant to put us in a position of questioning ourselves and standing in the world more ready to question, to ask questions, to wonder. The way we did when we were kids before we grew up in, screwed it all up. I think there are lots of It's just, you know, when we get older and think we have all the answers to things. Um, we're meant to wonder. St. Thomas says it's always important to see things as they are. And I think that's particularly, if we, if we look at the readings, it's particularly true for religious minded people because we keep seeing that the, the ones who are, who seem to be very religious, are in fact not. They're proud, hypocritical, I mean, you can go through the list. We're going to see the same sort of thing here in the Odyssey. Um, It's so easy for moderns to look at Achilles as um, a flawed character. Um, My own reading of him is that that's not so. Um, And I I know that must sound odd because from a Christian perspective we have different values and we look at people and he's so proud you know, so ready to be angry. and But don't forget, we're in a war, we're in a pre-Christian world. It seems to me if we see things as Homer does, um, we can't read that book and not see Achilles as the hero. Lots of modern critics will make Hector the hero. I don't, I don't think the book bears that out. I think you have to turn the book a lot to, to come away with that conclusion. But I want to make a couple of things clear again to, to go back um, before we go on because the same claim that I'm, that I'm making w- with respect to Achilles, I'm making with Odysseus. There's a teacher at UD who thinks Odysseus is a scoundrel. If you read the Aeneid, you'll come away with the same conclusion. There's no way to read the Aeneid and not come away looking at Achilles and Odysseus as scoundrels. Both of them. Virgil has such reservations about both. He's, he's very, very critical of both of them. That's when we read Virgil. But in Homer's world it seems to me these two men represent the best fulfillment of the human potentials that's, that's possible in a war context and in a marriage. In the natural order. We're not in a Christian world. Charity has not entered the world. The, the standard, the frame of reference, are natural. But but I need to qualify that and I want to come back to that in a minute because it's absolutely crucial to see this before we leave the Iliad. At the end of, of the Iliad, sorry I don't have, I mean if I had my books, there'd be circles and underlining everywhere. and um, In book 21, sorry I should have done this in we got past it last week. In book 21, during the psychomachia, when Achilles re enters the war, you all remember, and the gods come in, he comes across this character called Lycaon. This is book 21 of the very beginning. And Achilles says, looking at this man, this is about line 55, so if you just jot it down when you get home or some other time you can go back yourself and look at these passages. He sees this figure and it appears to him almost as a ghost. This is one of the strangest episodes in the whole of the Iliad. There's something almost, um, gothic's not the right word, but mystical. I mean, we see gods coming in and out all the time, but Achilles never, Homer never describes an event like this. Achilles looks at this man and says, can this be? Here's a strange thing that my eyes look on. Now the great hearted Trojans, even those I've already killed, Will stand and rise up again out of the gloom and the darkness is this man. It's like a somebody's already killed his returning from the dead to face him again. So this is part of the sort of quasi-supernatural character of this these last few books, right? We've seen when the gods go into nature and they're fighting with each other. Um, and he wonders how this could be. And he grasps this man, it's like chaon. And what we discover through the narrative is that Achilles had captured this man a short time before and ransomed him to Priam. He escaped, came back, and, um, and is back home. And, and now he was one of the Trojans who was caught in the river when Achilles was trying to capture these men to take them so he could punish them um, in reparation for Patroclus' death. Um, And, um, sorry, I don't have my line, my book is just marked up. Um, Lycaon takes his knees, pleads with them, and then Achilles says, um, sorry, um, poor fool, no longer speak to me of ransom nor argue, because Lycaon says, my, my father will ransom me. And I've already described Troy as the, as the enabling city. That they they too often allow their family loyalties to to get in the way of holding somebody to justice. They do it with Paris. They do it with other people. Remember, Paris bribed people to support him. Um, Hector bribes soldiers to get the armor. I mean, we went through some of those scenes. Um, it's the wealthy city. It's called the, city, the, the realms of gold, with all of its treasures. Poor fool, no longer speak to me of ransom nor argue it. In the time before Patroclus came to the day of his destiny, then it was the way of my heart's choice to be sparing. Now there's no one who can escape death. If the gods send him against my hands in front of Ilion, not one of all the Trojans and beyond others, the children of Priam. So, friend, you die also. Why all this clamor about it? Patroclus is dead, who is a better by far than you are. Do you not see what a man I am, how huge, how splendid, born of a great father, a mother who bore me immortal? Yet even I also have my death and my strong destiny, and there will be a dawn or an afternoon." Remember we've talked about this, he's the only one in the book who accepts his death, goes into it, and once he makes that choice, nobody can touch him. This is an important. It's an important scene because it's like a two-way mirror. It points to Troy. It makes clear once again, and in a in a, a, almost a marvelous way, Troy's enabling character that he was ransomed and expects to expects to be. How do you? What's that phrase? When fathers bail out, he expects to be bailed out again. That his dad will give him the money, so he'll get out of trouble. We know the trouble of that. That when, when people are enabled, it's like the, 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 you call them, the impoverished cities in America that get steeped in crime and, and without help, they end up staying there. That enabling doesn't help anybody, it just, what it does is reinforce the, the problem. But the lines here are, are, are extra, and when I read them this year, I mean, I, every time I read them, I, it's like a chill. Um, Why all the clamor? Everybody's going to die. Patroclus is a better man. It doesn't matter if we're writing a book, (laughs) if we're writing a book, if we're teaching a class, if we've got to do something with our spouses, or, you know, whatever's going on. We're all going to die. The question is, are we ready? Have we accepted it? What the Iliad is about is fundamentally what happens to a man once he accepts his own death. I, I want to try to make this argument entirely quickly, because I don't want to spend too much time here, I want to get on, but remember what we said last time. If we look at all the battles once Achilles withdraws, we see that there's um, a trajectory, that the battles uh, move in an ascending order of importance for greater heroism. So we start with good figures but we we move towards the very greatest. Sarpedon gets killed, Patroclus gets killed, and Hector gets killed. And we know Achilles' death is coming. So if we take all of these battles and set them against Achilles and what happens when he returns, and remember, all of these take place in his absence. It's like it's, he's implied. And we know that what's happened with Achilles is once he withdraws from the war, he's turned his back on the honor code by which everybody else lives. So they're measuring their battles, they're measuring their honor in terms of whatever it is they value most in the world. I thought your comment um, was wonderful. But if you remember Plato's cave, remember that everybody lives by appearances and it's only the person who comes out, who turns away from the shadows, who begins to question it, who sees things as they are. And in one sense, we can say all of these are living in this cave, this shadow that they're, they have, they're brave men. Homer, Homer does not judge anybody. He never says, bad man, good man. Not Paris, who started it, not Hector, for not standing, he just puts them next to each other and leaves us to judge. They're all good. They're all good men. They're dying for something they believe in. But the one man that stands out from this, I think, by which we're meant to judge everybody else is Achilles. And what we see in him is a very different kind of hero from these other men. So Homer's showing us in Achilles the possibility of what a man can become in the context of a war situation. That a man is going to risk his life and the question is, what's at stake for him? and you've heard me saying it all along, that what I think what Homer's showing is that there's this radical shift from valuing external things as a way of um, attributing worth to the human person to moving inward, to see the nature of the soul itself. What happens in the psychomachia when all of the gods do battle is an ordering among the gods. Okay? What, now... Stop and put Achilles, and Hector and next to each other for a second. In some ways, Hector undermines himself because he's trying to be somebody he's not. Patroclus did it when he put on his armor. Hector went even farther because we saw repeatedly that Hector said, Oh, if I could only be as the gods, Apollo and Athena, all the days of my life. He wanted to be like a god. That in, in some ways, he, he refused to accept his limitations as a human being, who he was. Achilles accepts his mortality, and once he does, nobody can stop him. He comes into the fullness of who he is. And I think what Homer's showing us is that only happens when somebody accepts his mortality, accepts his death. Now here's the paradox, it seems to me, that's, that partly points towards Christ, too, is that it's, it's only when Achilles does that it's only when he does that, when he enters the battle, that something transcendent in the soul enters him. And that's that, that's that ordering of the gods. The rational over the appetitive, the cognitive over the emotions. Remember the, all of the Achaean gods defeated the Trojan gods. Um, the, the east and west turn gods are like f- filters, cultural filters, by which people try to apprehend gods, and um, it's the Western gods that show reason to be superior to the to the um, appetites, cognition, the act of apprehension, superior to the emotions. Um, we saw that in Zeus. We're going to see it in, in we're going to see it in the distance too. So the, the thing that I'd like to leave you with is that that in Achilles we have Homer's. Um, rendering of what a man can come to when he accepts his mortality his human limits. There's something transcendent in man but man can't come to it until he does this. And The the amazing thing about this, if if you read Aristotle and Plato you see everything they did comes from Homer there are these lines in Aristotle where he says to to, um, To reduce man to what's only animal or what's only human is to consign him to misery. But there's something in man that breathes above time. And I hope you see the difference. Hector wants to be like a god. Achilles never says anything like that. And he becomes fully human in a way that that shows that there's something divine in him when he does that. And um, it should be clear to all of us that that's what happens when Christ comes into the world. <coughs> that he, he took on human nature because there was some great glory to it and asked us to follow him so that we could realize, and maybe the best way to put it is, we're not angelic. When we try to be like angels, we do harmful things to ourselves. We're not angels, we're humans. I get really upset when I hear people wanting to call us angels. I know, I know. <laughs> Truly, I mean, I, we're not angelic. We're humans. God gave us a body. He made us a certain way. The question is, do we accept it or do we want to try to be something we're not? When we when we try to be what God has given us to be, we tend to be more capable of doing whatever it is, whatever whatever we've been given, whatever, because all of us have different talents, different natures, you know, and I. I'm sure you've had that experience when you you reach a point where you say, "God, what have I been knocking my head against a wall?" and and then when you try to do the things that are given to you to do that are in your nature, you know, I, we just had our grandchildren for a week, and and I'm just <laughs> worn out, <off>, but <laughs> but I but I look at the kids and I God, they're all so different. They're just so completely different. And trying to help each one be what he is, I mean. The, Think about what a chore that is for a parent. But Anyway, let me let me leave it at rest. I, I, that's just the way I wanted to close, because we're going to find the same thing with Odysseus in a very different context. And the reason I'm saying this is because there are some critics, I'm thinking of one one professor, UD, who thinks Odysseus is an awful guy. At the end of the book, Odysseus is going to slaughter the suitors, he's going to kill 100 men, He's going to string the maidservants up. He's going to put a wire around the head of these women for the stupid things they've been doing and jerk it. I mean, they're going to be gawking, tongues hanging out, and no, nobody's going to find that very pleasant. And from our perspective as Christians, we're, we may look at that in horror. I'm a little bit glad myself, but...
1: <laughs> anyway,
0: that's, that's, that's Homer's treatment of Odysseus, who is the other? If, if Achilles is the the great, the, the person who shows this individual intrinsic worth that God created in humans, we're gonna. The shift here is gonna be. The shift is gonna be from the individual to a marriage and homes. So the context is gonna shift. Now we're gonna look at relationships, but in the Iliad we're looking at the individual by himself. So question.
1: Homer's and I, I, I don't know if this is the correct statement. Does Homer write the first great Western hero in Achilles? Okay, as yeah. far as known known ancient literature.
0: Yeah, okay. For sure, we got a question. So but unless you want to
1: <clears throat> unless you want
0: to go to the Bible with Abraham and you know his descendants
1: well I, I guess from a heroic standpoint, the hero always in, in any kind of literature, any kind of movies, or, or anything else, that you know, the, the greatest heroes seem to change from within, which is what Achilles did. Odysseus kind of does the same thing through trials, tribulations, changes. Without that a question? Yeah. But, so, so, you know, Homer's setting the stage for the quote-unquote hero, okay, and then as you relate that to Christ, he can't change any more of himself because he's already perfect. So what he does is he helps us to find that not perfect, not perfection, but to help to change inside. Yeah. And I wonder if that is more of your relation. When you start to relate that the great heroes have found a way to change themselves, where we seem to have lost that through Christ, are finding it again because they were pre Christ, pre Christian, so they used whatever mm-hmm. and, and all the, the metaphors and the things around the gods and, and, yeah. the, and, the, and, the, and the natural world. I don't
0: know. Boy, well, I'm sorry. If, if we had more time, that's such a good question. If we had more time, I, I, I would have asked us to do Sir Gown and the Green Knight, which is the the middle ages adaptation of the warrior to the chivalric christian knight to see how christian values radically, radically change because what what we learn when we enter the christian world is that as great as achilles is or or odysseus the highest they can get is justice caritas self-sacrificing love as we know it from christ is beyond them And even though that's an ideal of the Christian knights in the Middle Ages, and we see something of it in Dante. For those of you who've read Dante, you know his love of Beatrice, and how I mean, he couldn't be farther away from Achilles and Odysseus. Remember, he faints every ten cantos; he passes out, and, (laughs) um, and he's got a guide. He's willing to learn. I mean, once we enter into a Christian world. The, the, the terms and the frames of reference change radically because we we've got a divine love now entering that that is absolutely sacrificing because God allowed himself to go to Christ. That goes way beyond anything Achilles or Odysseus would have done so but yeah the foundations of it are there and but Christ brings something perfect divinely perfect into the human that Achilles and Odysseus never could. When we get to when we get to Shakespeare, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to set out. I did it with Dante. Those of you who are here, but to set out the difference between love and justice, because the great virtue of the pagan world was justice, giving what's due. The great virtue of the of the Middle Ages of the Christian world is caritas charity. Um, they're related. the The Christian today is asked to bring those two together. St. Thomas's work is probably the most perfect reconciliation of those two worlds. Everything, everything pre-Christian, Homer, Aristotle, Plato, you know, adapted into a Christian view. What he did was bring it all to perfection. Um, we're, as Christians we're asked to, to bring justice and love together and that means bringing to what we do with justice a spirit of mercy that justice itself doesn't have. Um, that, by the way, this is going to be right at the heart of Merchant of Venice. Portia's going to say, um, mercy followeth as the gentlest rain from heaven. It, it, what's the word? Not tempers. Tempers?
2: falls on the just and the unjust.
0: Yeah, but it's, the word is, it tempers justice. It, justice by itself is too harsh. Without mercy, it, it's we belong in a pagan world, you know, where, where justice is really sharp. Okay, let me stop. Thank you for saving me. I owe you <laughs> again. Okay, so we're we're leaving a world that has to do with in the, this intrinsic honor this honor that's given in the nature of man. And it's clear that Homer sees that not all men are are given the same physical attributes, or physical or emotional, people are different. But there's this intrinsic honor. Man only arrives at it when he orders his own soul. Um, And that means answering the disorders of the world. If you go back to that circle, all of the men were fighting for honor but there was something lacking um, um, as good as they were that we only really finally find in Achilles. Now we're shifting from that kind of a story to another one in which um, the focus is now on not just an individual but on a man and a woman on Odysseus and Penelope. So. We're moving, and it's amazing just to to think of these as founding works is absolutely essential because in the Iliad, we've got the individual and this intrinsic worth that man has. In the Odyssey, we've got marriage, and those are the two founding poems of Western civilization together with the Bible. So we've got the individual worth and marriage that are the cornerstones of our civilization. Without marriage, what... How can we count on civilization, any continuity in our civilizations? They will die out. And if we lose a sense of the dignity of the human person, where are we? So right at the very beginnings, in an amazing way, we are anticipating Christ. I mean, everything that, he, everything that comes to, to light with him. Okay, the, um, the epic, to this point, has been primarily a masculine endeavor. It will continue that way through the Odyssey, through the Aeneid, Aeneas will be the hero, through the Divine Comedy. You know that the, those of you who are here with the the Divine Comedy know that the epic hero radically changes with Dante. He's no longer a warrior, he's no longer a guy who wields, it's a man who's learning to think and to understand. So the, the, the notion of what constitutes the epic hero is radically changed with Dante, and that's because of a Christian worldview that, that's changed the way we look at ourselves. But here still, we're, in a, we're in, a, in a masculine world, the hero is masculine, but woman comes to the forefront now in a way that wasn't true in the Iliad. In the Iliad, Helen is behind everything. We know that. Um, <coughs> And in in an awful way in some ways. Um, here in the Odyssey, Penelope is going to come to the, f- be brought to the foreground, and she's going to show what an extraordinary woman she is. Um, and we're going <laughs> to, be on guard here, women. This <laughs> the, the Iliad is a dark critique of men. We've already seen that. The way in which men can use women easily as objects. We know that women are at the at the top of the list of booty, of possessions. That's, the high, that's why the war is. Fun. I mean, implicitly, the whole war has Paris and Helen at the center. They're not going to give Helen back because she's so beautiful. The Odyssey, in a sense, is the is the parallel critique of women. The center part of the, the center part of this is going to be probably the severest critique of women that I know of in literature we we'll get it all the way through great works of literature, George Eliot, Jane Austen, if you read them, Shakespeare's plays, but um, Shakespeare's plays are going to be the most remarkable because he, he shows, at, with a Christian view, how great women can be. Um, Merchant of Venice and Winner's Tale are, are two of the most amazing plays, and the central figures are women. Amazing things. Um, very heroic. We're in a pre-Christian world, Penelope is Odysseus's wife. She's been holding the suitors off for 20 years. Remember that the Trojan War lasted for 10 years, so if we look at the, if we look at the plot um, of the Odyssey and include it earlier in it, remember the Iliad opened in the ninth and a half year, right? And we said that that was important for understanding the nature of the epic, because nine and a half signifies that something's about to happen. And we saw what happens. Everything that happens at the end brings to a closure. It, sh- it gives us an image of man that radically changes the, the way we look at everything preceding it. The opening quarrel, the ransom, everything that, the, the different orders of authority, the conflicts. The Odyssey is going to do the same thing. When Odysseus left Troy, when Troy was destroyed, he set off for home. So it opens in the ninth and a half year, which means something's about to happen. That's where we are, in Medius race, in the middle of things. And we learn that he's been on aegisia Calypso's island, here for eight years. Um, and he was with Calypso for one year. So for the nine of the nine-and-a-half years, he was under the control of women. (coughs) scary. (laughs) (laughs) Odysseus has got to learn to come to terms with women before he can get home. So I hope that's just an obvious thing here. He's been away for almost 20 years. When the book opens, his wife is doing all she can to hold these suitors off, and you can imagine, this is 20 years now, so this isn't 5 years or 10 or 15, she's been, she's been waiting for her husband to return for 20 years. That's the measure of her fidelity. Her son, meanwhile, their son, Telemachus, has grown up without a father. And the book opens with Te- Telemachus, as you know, setting off in search of his father. Um, so it's partly about what happens when men go off and are not involved in the raising of their own sons. And the disorders are set in motion. Now remember, whatever we make of this, nine and a half years, it was unavoidable. He's a warrior. He's, he's got to go to war. Um, and the other nine and a half years, he's learning something. and. Th- This is going to radically change the image of a hero that we have from Achilles, radically. This is going to be a very very difficult hero. Um. So in the Iliad, women um, are pushed back to the background. This is principally about a war, a minute war. In the Odyssey, the sexual relationship is brought into the foreground. Um, We're aware of Penelope as a wife waiting for her husband and the the greater number of adventures that Odysseus has at sea involve women figures. So he's learning something about the feminine that Homer is showing us is crucial if a man is to come home and restore order to his home. So what's at the center of this book, which is the, the sort of counterpart of the Iliad, if the Iliad is about the integration of the soul, the proper ordering of the soul so that a man can realize his potential. The Odyssey is about realizing the potential of a marriage, of a man and woman coming together. We're not in a Christian world. This is in the natural order. Homer's showing us what can happen in a natural order when a man and woman come together. So we're moving away from the individual to homes and cities, and I, I, we're not going to do the Aeneid. And I'm, part of me regrets it, but we just can't. But for those of you who are here, and you'll you'll remember this. For those of you who weren't, just remember this: we're moving from the Iliad, the individual, to to marriages and homes, and in some way cities. We're going to see. You already know this from the invocation. Um, the many minds he learned of Odysseus's voyages took him to all these various cities so he learned the nature of man how could he come home and deal with problems if he doesn't understand the nature of man I mean how do any of us do it if we don't know something about if we don't know something about our nature we're in the dark we're in the dark um, and look sorry I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep trying to um, bring Virgil in just as a way of Giving you some sense because I I, I'm, I can't I'm not sure that any are going to go on. Virgil will pick this up, and he'll he'll move from this Greek world in the past, this Trojan world in the past, um, towards Rome, the eternal city, the city that will never die. So the field of values enlarges tremendously. We're moving from the individual to the common good, and it's one of the reasons Virgil. Um, is so um, critical, negatively critical, of both Achilles and Odysseus. He sees them as despicable figures. He thinks that Achilles is egotistic and self-centered, and he looks at um, Odysseus as a cunning, greedy man. The opening pages of the Aeneid will present that Greek world that way, because he believed the Greek world was too individualistic. To enter into Rome means you become at, at least as concerned about other people as you do yourself. So it's like we're moving even closer to a Christian world. Um, and it's Rome. I mean, it's amazing. He's, I mean, we're, God, it's just amazing. If you put these things together, we're getting closer and closer to the center of our faith in an amazing way, truly amazing. <coughs> OK, the themes of the Odyssey. Remember, in the invocation, the Homer is invoking the help of the goddess Calliope, the muse of epic poetry. So, once again, we're entering into epic time. And I made the statement before. Epic time means time is only real when a man is acting, when he's moving to fulfill his kleos. I mean, it's one of the one of the severe condemnations of Lycaon at the end. Lycaon is groveling in his feet, and you say, "What's the matter? We're all going to die." I, I that hit me with such. I want to get my book done. If any of you know me seriously, I want to get the thought of dying. But somehow we have to make our peace with that. If we don't say, it "Can happen any minute," that means we're always hedging our bets. We're always we always want to back up. We don't we don't face the truth of it. So. If a man is not moving towards his kleos, if he isn't moving to realize what he's been... Long life, long comfortable life, short life of honor. We're in epic time. In the Iliad, time... Remember in in the Divine Comedy, time was love. I can't go there now, but those of you who are with me, it's actually a profound way of looking at it. In the Homeric world, time is only real when a person is struggling to complete his self, who he's been given to be. Now it will be epic time, Will be re- time will only be real to the extent that the hero is moving towards his home, to return to his wife, to attain the completeness that's possible between a man and a woman. The great theme of the, of the Odyssey is the homecoming. The great theme of the Iliad is Kleos. The great theme of of the odyssey is gnostos. Gnostos, from which we get nostalgia. I love that word. Looking back, yeah? Longing for those things we've lost. In Dante, for those of you who remember, it's looking back and forward because Dante believes our ultimate home is with God. So the nostos for Dante, I mean Dante took all of this in. The reason he could do so well is because he brought the whole tradition forward. He took the individual and the marriage, all of it gets assimilated into a Christian worldview. The nostos for Dante is returning home. In, in, in the Aeneid, Aeneas <laughs> doesn't know it, but when he leaves Troy to found a home, he, f- he discovers that he's actually returning to his origins. There's that line in the Iliad where Aeneas is getting into a fight and it has, I didn't quote it, but it, I don't know if I gave it to you in the notes or not, but Aeneas, Aeneas the figure who fought Diomedes and then um, um, Patroclus at the end, um, it said Aeneas came from the line of darkness which never dies out. That's the line that Virgil uses to justify Rome. That Rome is the city that will never die out. Why? Because Aeneas is the founder of it. Aeneas comes from the line of darkness. So when Aeneas goes, doesn't know it, but when he's heading to Rome, he's actually going back to his origins that were in such a distant past that he didn't know it. Those of you who did Dante, Remember when he when he got into the heights of the Paradiso, he was returning to origins. He went back to his baptismal font. He met his great great grandfather, and then he met Adam, and then he met Christ or saw Christ. In so, and we read those lines from Eliot: "In my beginning is my end, and my end is my beginning." That all of us are trying to get back to our beginnings, with God, our Father. So. This, the theme of nostos is once again introduced here. The tradition's going to make it richer until we get into a Christian review, but here's, here's its founding. The great theme of the Odyssey is Odysseus returning home. The other great theme, a new kind of hero. The two choices facing man in the Iliad were long, comfortable life, short life, with honor. Those are the only alternatives. Odysseus is called thoughtful, long-suffering Odysseus. Always long-suffering Odysseus. He has to endure. He has to go through all these trials. There's the, there's the precondition again for the Christian world. He has to go through all these trials to get home. Um, the word suffering, I, I gave you that sheet. I'm going to go back to it when we start Shakespeare, but I just briefly want to touch on it. The word suffering comes from Sefera the Anglo-Saxon, the, normal, the um, Anglo-Norman, meaning fertile, ferah, It means bearing up from underneath, Sefer, It means to bear up, to bring from down below up. It's the root from which we get fertile. Stop and think about that. We want to do everything we can to get away from suffering, right? Who wants to suffer? But this is called long suffering. The word itself means bearing up, bringing from below, to produce something fertile, to bring something good out of it. Let me read this thing I gave you in that, that sheet on the emotions. I'll come back to it. In reality, we suffer only in our relations with others. The possibility of suffering measures the intimacy and the intensity of the bonds which unite us to another being. We do not suffer in our relations with those who are indifferent. In fact, indifference, in some sense, protects us against suffering. When indifference ceases, our capacity for suffering returns, and it is proportionate to our interest in our affection for another. It emerges as soon as the bonds which unite us to the other are threatened. It is then that the bonds of friendship testify to their existence and their death. We are told that in pain we pass to a lesser degree of perfection. Pain is a loss. It's a privation. We suffer. It's It's a loss of something good. It's inevitable that this passage should affect our interior activity. We have an awareness of what we've just lost. We know that at one point we had something and now no longer have it. But the very awareness of this loss introduces in us, as has always been held, a growth of consciousness, which is not itself a loss. Consequently, there is born in us a new being, very different from the being we were before we began to suffer. My spontaneity is curved when we suffer. I know, I think I'm speaking for a bit. When we're suffering and we come out of it, we're not as light as we used to be. Is that fair? We don't take things as much for granted. We're not as glib or, you know, we're, we're not as, hopefully, we're not as arrogant or vain. My spontaneity is curved, it's true, but my reflections and my will come into play to compensate for what has been taken away from me. My activity, which has been up to this point instinctive, and here's the part I want to underline, it has now become spiritual. The use that I make of it will depend upon me alone. It will be up to me to decide whether or not this loss can be converted into a gain. I think about is it Nicodemus? Born again? The, that conversion, remember the night? that How did he put it? How am I going to go jump into my mother? No, but, but well, we're, what we're made aware of is that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That we enter into something spiritual out of that so that we change the way we do things we keep going on doing things the way we were, it's as if a grace given to us, or the possibility of a grace has been refused. Odysseus is called long-suffering Odysseus. He has to bear again and again and again all these losses. Odysseus was swift-footed.
1: Thanks, (laughs)
2: thanks, (laughs) thanks, Doc. God,
0: Joe, pray for Suzanne, please. (laughs) (laughs) I truly is is a saint.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You are ready, (laughs) oh God, Um.
0: Achilles show shows a short life with honor. Okay? Odysseus is called long suffering. It's really interesting because so much of what happens to him comes as a result. I mean, there are lots of things he brings on himself, and we'll we'll see that when we look into it. That's one of the reasons Virgil disliked him so much. Because Odysseus continually makes choices that puts his men at risk. That's not a good thing. Virgil's gonna come down on that everywhere. Really hard. He, he keeps doing things to put himself at risk instead of being more prudent, more careful. But lots that happens to him happens as a result of the things around him, nature. And the question becomes, what does he learn? Does he learn in order to become a better human being? And what we'll see is he will, I mean, that's what the book is about. Um, we'll we'll uh, we'll discover, and this to me is to me is going to be one of the to me it's one of the most amazing things that I, I I have ever encountered. All my readings. If if Achilles is the image of the a human person coming to the fulfillment of his potential in a war context, Odysseus is the fulfillment of that in a broader, more universal way and particularly with respect to the home. What we're going to find in Odysseus is that he represents a mean, a norm. Now we don't make much of norms today because we think for an individual to be an individual, he's got to be different. We don't like, our, our, our culture doesn't like ordinary things. One of the reasons I love G.K. Chesterton is because he, he, he affirms the ordinary in everything he does. Odysseus is going to image for us a mean, the, the, the virtue that's possible for human beings to achieve in in their relationships with other people. But that obviously means he's going to have to struggle, suffer to attain that. Remember earlier when I gave you the image of the soul and said the great concern of the, of the pagan world was giving what's due but you couldn't do that until you ordered your own soul. You had to you had to become a better person by what you did in order to be just to another person. Otherwise, we end up being selfish or you know, too absorbed on ourselves or whatever it is. But we can't be just to another person if we don't straighten out the things inside of us. Odysseus is that person. What he's learning on his voyages is to attain, fulfill this norm. And what it, what it means is he's learned to see the extremes in all all possible aspects of life and to see the virtue that's possible and it's interesting that in almost every adventure in so many of the adventures that he has prophecies were given that he would come and they all come to fulfillment and they don't recognize it. Why? Because they don't understand virtue. If Aristotle's definition of virtue was the mean. I want to come back to this because it's, it's a notion we have lost today but it's I think it's absolutely crucial. There's nothing, if it isn't clear, let me put it this way. There's nothing that Christ did that wasn't virtuous. So Odysseus is an image of realizing the possibilities of our human nature in terms of the virtues, whatever the circumstances would be. He's the prudent man, the man of many ways who knows what to do, whatever the circumstances are. Um, And unlike unlike Achilles, Odysseus reaches a point in his life where he can't go on without learning to use language better than he does. One of the major turning points is going to be the the cave episode with Polyphemus the Cyclops. What will get him out of that um, fatal situation that he's in is what he does with language. And we're going to learn. It's going to it's going to permeate this book that you cannot become the virtuous person that God's given us to be without learning to use language. I've been saying that from the beginning of this class. That's why we've been reading poetry. That um, so those are some of the major themes of the of the Odyssey. I want to just take a look at some of the. Um, Let's see if I can do this quickly. The the structure of the Odyssey is basically this. It opens with an assembly of the gods, talking about how human beings blame the gods that say they they don't have free will and and that the gods are at fault for everything. We've already seen that in the Iliad. So often the the human beings blame the gods. Agamemnon did. um, following that is the Telemachi, the first four books that deal with Telemachus reaching a point in his life where he's, he, he can no longer be a boy. He has to grow up. And it's going to put him at, at odds with his mother a little bit. He's going to leave to try to find his father. And he's going to go visit Pylos and Sparta, the home of Nestor and, and Allowance. Um, in the middle, in books 6, 5, and 6, We pick up Odysseus, who is at Ogesia, Calypso's island. If you remember that that, that plot line I showed you here. Um, He's at Ogesia here, Um, Calypso's island, where he's been for eight years. And um, Hermes will set him free. He will crash in Iraq and come to Scaria, the island of the Phaeacians. And here he will tell his adventures. And will go back to the past to learn what he did. And when he's done telling his adventures, um, the the Phaeacians will take him home. And the last third of the book will deal with his homecoming and the final battle. But this is crucial right here. Because the um, books 1 through 5 of the opening section 1 through 4 5 through 13 are the adventure stories, and 13 to 24 is the homecoming. The greater part of the book has to do with Odysseus telling stories. It's a new hero. It's it's over a third of the book. So he's a man who's using language to reflect on his past to see things that he would not have been able to see if he had not used language. That's just another way of reinforcing the importance of this theme, how important language is. I hope that's clear. Can you pull out your joya poem? It isn't too late. That's perfect. Do you all have the joya poem? Actually, this is good. This is appropriate. Let me just read this quickly. This is what we should have opened with, but I'm glad to do it now because it it actually speaks to what we're talking about. This is Dame Joy. By the way, Joy is a Catholic. I've been grousing, getting pretty upset for the last 10 years because I just don't see any Catholic writers. I don't, they just don't exist anymore. Any good ones. Joy is a Catholic poet. He was, um, Bush um, asked him to head the the National Endowments for the Arts in Washington, and he took, listen to this, he took Shakespeare to the ghetto streets and revolutionized, I mean, transformed education for a time. He just did this great job of taking Shakespeare to the streets and um, did great things with it. This is this poem where, The world does not need words. It articulates itself in sunlight, leaves, and shadows. The stones on the path are no less real for lying, uncatalogued, and uncounted. The fluent leaves speak only the dialect of pure being. The kiss is still fully itself, though no words were spoken. And one word transforms it into something less or other. Illicit, chaste, refunctory, conjugal, covert, Even calling it a kiss betrays the fluster of hands, glancing the skin or gripping a shoulder, the slow arching of neck or knee, the silent touching of tongues. Yet the stones remain less real to those who cannot name them or read the mute syllables graven in silica. To see a red stone is less than seeing it as jasper, metaphoric quartz, cousin to the flint, the Kiowa carved as arrowheads, To name is to know and remember. The sunlight needs no praise piercing the rain clouds, painting the rocks and leaves with light, then dissolving each lucent droplet back into the clouds that engendered it. The daylight needs no praise, and so we praise it always, greater than ourselves and all the airy words we summon. Imagine imagine growing up without learning to use words the darkness that we would be trapped in. I hope that's clear. Picture a girl who was put in a closet and then let loose twenty years later, who'd never learned what would she see in the world? Without words to name things. Truly I'm asking that, what would she see? How much would she miss because she wouldn't have a word for? It, you know? So Odysseus is a hero whose homecoming is gonna depend very much on what he does with words. In the middle of the book, he tells his stories. And what we're going to see is, is largely his experience with these feminine archetypes. So Odysseus is learning to use words to penetrate below the surface of things. So the man that we've been with now for a month in Troy is leaving that warrior code and going home. And part of the condition for getting home, leaving that warrior code behind, is what he does with words. Learning to use words. To reflect on his own experiences. The the best way to put this is can we imagine Achilles seeing the things that Odysseus comes to see on his... If you've not read the adventures you won't but but I'm hoping you'll keep up. By the way the next next reading from what is it? 9 to 16? will be major because it's gonna be the adventures and you're gonna encounter all of the archetypes that are that are gonna be really crucial for understanding what what it is Odysseus actually comes to learn that I think we're to assume none of the men back at Troy did. They don't have a clue about what's going on. So, um, and let me, let me just quickly turn to one line and then I wanna just, I wanna talk about the Telemachus. With the brief time we have left, oh, we're good. We're going to have time for questions. Um,
2: now or later. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: later, later. That hurt. That really hurt. Oh, I, just, I just had one, but I didn't know if you wanted me to say it. Before. No, no, I'm, I'm,
0: I'm so, I'm glad we were, because I'm going to, I'm going to do something brief in a minute, and then I'm going to open up for questions. Um, Just for you, Fred. You tell me me (laughs) where. Okay. Take a look at. um, I've got to do this quickly if I'm going to make good on (laughs) my. Look at. at, um, I don't know if we have the. Mine is page 54, but look at chapter 3, line 115. This is when he comes to Pylos and meets with Nestor. And remember when we were doing Nestor? Nestor was the one who, right in the middle of a battle, would end up going on and on and on telling a story about his great deeds. (laughs) So here's this man now, returned home, who can talk about nothing but the great deeds of the past. And, And he says here about line 115, And many besides these were the evils we suffered. What man... Who was one of the mortal people could even tell the whole of it not if you were to sit beside me five years and six that is not if he went on and by the way i think Nestor could sit down for five years and still not get the story out um if you've read ahead you know that when odysseus comes to Scyria, demodocus the singer is going to sing the stories of the trojan war it's going to reduce odysseus to tears twice it's going to put him in tears so that we see a, an actual poet, a bard, doing what Homer does. Mm-hmm. Sitting in a community, telling a story, moving people, inspiring them. But here's Nestor saying, not, not any mortal. not if he had five or six years, could tell the story. Is that true? No, well,
2: he just said Nestor could.
0: Well, Nestor couldn't. He says no man could. Anybody want to quarrel with that? Yeah. There's a question. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> right here, she said. Yeah, you can, because Homer's done it. And yeah, i say, I mean, Homer's, later it, does it? it doesn't mean like a story has to account for everything, but I think the whole of it is here as we would know it, you know, in the Iliad and the Honesty. The, and I think Homer's aware of that when he, speak, when he gives that line to Nestor, but because Nestor's full of irons. Um Here, I want to just quickly look at some lines, and then... Um, and then stop for questions. To, uh, look at the opening, just to get the themes out. The very opening invocation, Tell me, news of the man of many ways who was driven for journeys after he had sacked Troy's sacred citadel. Many were they whose cities he saw, whose minds he learned of, many of the pains he suffered in his spirit of the wide sea, Um, struggling for his own life and the homecoming of his companions. Even so, he could not save his companions hard though he strove. They were destroyed by their own recklessness. Fools, that that word foot in the Greek, fools, occurs in that first foot all the way through the poem. It's his way of accentuating it. Who devoured the oxen of Helios, (coughs) he goes on and then he he speaks of the, the god who's angry. It's Poseidon angry and doing what he can to keep Odysseus from getting home because as we will learn in the story Odysseus put out Poseidon's eye. Mm-hmm. I mean uh, Closemus's um, oh, eye, yeah, who is was related to Poseidon, okay? Um, the word fool in Greek, the word fool called nebios, nebios. Um, means fool, but it also means childlike, unable to use language, unable to use words, like a child. When we get to the Cyclops, you're going to see the Cyclops are one-eyed creatures who see things literally. That is, they only see one dimension. They don't see multiple levels, and that's why Odysseus so easily tricks him. So one of the things we're being asked to see throughout this is, is, the, um, is the way in, in which people can use language to open up multiple levels of reality to, to see more than what's on the surface, or whether they're stuck on the surface literally. And very often the ones who are stuck on the surface literally want to be there because they want to keep doing what they want to do. They don't want to change. We're going to see that again and again and again. The whole question, one of the fundamental questions at the root of it is the Socratic question is um, what's there? Um, do I see things as they are? Is there more going on? Am I, am I open to it? The, the great question for all the people in this book is this question about the openness to the gods. Whether they hear the gods speaking, whether they see them present, because the gods are constantly coming. Remember, so many of the people that Odysseus visits have had warning prophecies, and they come to fulfillment, and they didn't even see the conditions working out in front of them. They were warned. When, when we begin the book, you're going to see the gods speaking to the suitors, and the gods blow them off. I, I mean, the suitors blow the gods off. They don't listen very well. They don't hear. Remember Poly, or, um Polydamus? And the Iliad kept talking to Hector, trying to convince him to do things, he was reading the bird signs, and Hector kept ignoring. He just wanted to keep doing what he wanted to do. He didn't listen. <coughs> um, Mentes, Athena comes look at this first. On page two, the gods are in meeting, and um, about line 32, O oh for shame how the, ma- how the mortals put the blame upon us gods, for they say evils come from us, but it is they rather, who by their own recklessness win sorrow beyond what is given. We're going to see that again and again. One of the reasons for underlining this passage is that they mention that Agistos, who is the lover of Clytemnestra, Agamemnon's wife, Aegisthos plotted with Clytemnestra to kill Agamemnon when he came home. So what we learn at the very beginning of the book is that <laughs> home is a very dangerous place. <laughs> Lots of the men never got home, and some of the men who set off faced dangers when they get there. When we we'll look. I'll just look at these just briefly in a minute. All of the homes are in disorder. There's something wrong with every one of the homes. We're presented with three marriages, three homes in the beginning, and they're all in disorder. There's something wrong. Um, We learn here that um, Augustus and Clytemnestra plotted to kill Agamemnon and did, and Orestes, Agamemnon's son, had to kill his mother to avenge the death. So one of the things Telemachus knows is that there's this young man who had to face this terrible ordeal he had, to, he had to hold her accountable for what she did there's no court system, there's no police state there. These things had to be done by those closest. Um, he's aware that this young man did something and the question he faces and he berates him this is a little bit like Hamlet, it's looking forward to Hamlet. He berates himself and says no wonders if he's got the courage to do this. Um, he'll carry that with him through the first part of the book. Um, on page 36, line 345, wait, 36, 36 lines, this is, sorry, this is book one still, 345. Femios is the bard. He's like Demodocus for the Fakians. He sings. The suitors want him playing all the time because all they're doing is eating and drinking and wanting music. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Young people hanging out at bars all the time. um, um, Femios sings of the Trojan War and Penelope is moved to tears and she asks him to stop. This moment's not a small one because it's one of the first times that Telemachus actually stands up to not let the emotion, her emotions determine what's going to happen. Then the thoughtful Telemachus said to her in answer, Why, my mother, do you begrudge this excellent singer his, ple- his pleasing himself as, as thought drives him? It is not the singers who are to blame. It must be Zeus is to blame who gives out to men who eat bread the way he wills it. There is nothing wrong in his singing the sad return of the Danans. Go down, so let your heart and your spirit be hardened to listen means she has to be reminded of Odysseus but um, he wants them to go through. This is one of the first moments when he asserts himself as a man in in his home and shows that he's on the verge of going into manhood. Um, Athena uh, uh, um, Telemachus calls an assembly and he confronts the suitors he um, actually makes them a little bit nervous. This is in, in the second book, on, on about page 44. Um, the suitors blame Penelope because they tell him that she tricked them all. You know the trick that she she told them she would marry when she finished with his weaving, but every night she wove it, and over the night she would unweave it. So she managed to hold them off for a while, but. Um, they're losing patience and they're threatening him and he's getting nervous um, that he doesn't have the strength to do anything to stop them. Athena comes again and tells him to set off again to see Nestor and um, Menelaus. I want to just touch on these briefly. Go to um, the Nestor scene. This is book three now. We're in Pylos. and, and once again, we learn about Augustus, who killed. um
2: one page one. This is page 56,
0: about line 195. It's, I'm on that page. Um, Telemachus says to Nestor, son of Neleus, great glory. Um, if only the gods would give me such strength as he has, because Nestor has spoken about how what a brave man Odysseus was, such strength as he has to take revenge on the suitors for their overbearing oppression. They force their way upon me and recklessly plot against me. No, the gods have spun out no such strand of prosperity for me and my father. Now we must even have to endure it. So he holds himself next to Orestes who killed his and his father for their bravery. And there's um, something a little bit um, self-deprecating what he's doing. Then in turn Nestor, the Gerinian horseman answered him, Dear friends, since you've spoken about these things and reminded me, go down, tell me, are you willingly put down or are the people who live about you swayed by some divine voice and hate you? Who, wh- who knows whether he will come some day and punish the violence of these people either by himself or all the Akines with him? If only gray-eyed Athena would deign to love you as in those days she used to take care of glorious Odysseus in the Trojan country where we of kind suffered miseries, For I never saw the gods showing such open affection as Pallas Athena, the way she stood beside him openly. If she would deign to love you as she did him and care for you in her heart, then some of those suitors might well forget about marrying. Notice the understatement of that, that's so well done. (coughs) Now you all know that Athena's present next to him in the guise of Mentor. Mm -hmm. So she's there, and Nestor says this about her, not knowing that she's present. And then Telemachus says, then the thoughtful Telemachus said, Old sir, I think that what you have said will not be accomplished. What you mean is too big, it bewilders me. That which I hope for um, could never happen to me, not even if the gods so willed it. Now, what's, going, why, what's the irony here? Is it obvious? What's the irony? The gods are there. Yeah,
2: she's helping him out.
0: Yes, she's helping him out. She's the, now. Why doesn't? I mean, does everybody see the irony? She's next to him. She's with him. She's helping. She, even though he doesn't know it, she's with him. Why doesn't she just take off her disguise and say, mm, "Immature child, he's boy. I'm here all the time." Um, she's the goddess of wisdom, by the way. She's the goddess. Of, well, why didn't she do that? Well,
1: maybe she's trying to teach him something. What? How to be a
0: man. <laughs> 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 no, true, I mean, can you, a that, can you flesh that out some or?
1: Well, I mean, it, it can't be that easy, right? You gotta work for it, you gotta yeah. learn it, so, yeah. uh, yep. you know.
0: Yep. Yeah, you can't expect somebody to do it for you.
2: Right. When he's doing sort of a mini-search, a mini mm-hmm. travel in order to learn, yep. Odyssey. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: But he doesn't think much of himself either.
0: Right, right. And he
1: hasn't been a father.
0: Right. right. All of those. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. All yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, he. I mean, do you see the danger if she came out and did it for him? Because if she, if she, if he learned to depend on her, what would he ever do? What would he ever risk? He's he's got to come out. She's the goddess of wisdom. She's doing what she can to help him, but he has got to learn to struggle so. to do things on his own. He will never do them. So. Um, it, it's one of the wonderful ironies of that scene that she's there, and he says, "Not even," and, and he's given to despair. He, he, he tends to make the worst of things. He will make them blacker. It makes it easier for him to feel sorry for himself. You no, know, it's too big for me. It's too large. He's got to learn to get to his feet. She's got to learn to help. And he has—he has he had no father, so that's not an easy task. Um, go on over to. Um, During this whole time in Pylos, we've not seen Nestor's wife on page 62, line 450. Athena will disappear and they'll suddenly see that it was a god who was with them all the time. Um, And then towards the end, the wife emerges, um, the neck and unstrung the strength of the cow, and now the daughters and daughters-in-law of Nestor and his grave wife Eurydice, Eldest of the daughters. It goes on. They lifted the couch, so they prepare the food. Um, now I think that's interesting. Just hold on. Book four. He comes to Menelaus of Sparta, and there, when they arrive, he and Pisistratus, Nestor's son, they're guarded. They don't welcome him. I think the reason for that is because Nestor's guarded because of what happened with. Paris, because Paris violated. Remember, in the Greek world you're always supposed to welcome strangers because a stranger could be a god. And I think we see this guardedness here because of what happened before. They're carrying that with them. But they're received, and um, Telemachus asks Menelaus if he knows anything about his his dad, and um, Menelaus tells them the story of what happened when they set off. There was this quarreling among the Greeks and some of them didn't offer sacrifices and they lost their lives and some had to go back. Um, on page 71, about um, line 1, 220 or so, Helen comes down and when um, she greets Telemachus and, and sees who it is, the first thing that she does when they start talking about the Trojan War, um, she tells the story of how she um, um, was aware that the Greeks were in the horse, but didn't give them away. But on line 220, she says, Into the wine of which you were drinking, she cast a medicine of heart's ease, free of gall, to make one forget all sorrows. And whoever had drunk it down once, it had been mixed in the wine fountain. For that day he drank it, would have had no tear roll down his face. Not if his mother died and his father died. Not if men murdered a brother or beloved son in his presence. Such were the subtle medicines Zeus's daughter had in her possession." What's wrong with that? If you if you don't feel don't. your brother's loss or your father's loss or your mother or whoever, what's wrong? There's
2: no, suffering.
0: There's no suffering. Not only no suffering, but you can't do anything about it. Orestes killed his mother. A, a, Telemachus is going to have to do something at home. How can he do it if there's... Would, well, would Orestes have killed his mom if he had this stuff around to numb his feelings? I mean, if you're not outraged at what happens to somebody you love, what will you do? Nothing. Just go on. Just pass it out. Um, she tells the story of what happened. And, um, and then Menelaus tells the story of his meeting with the old man of the sea when he was stormbound. And it's then that he learns of, of what happened to some of the men. And it's then that he tells Telemachus that one of the men who survived was Odysseus. So, twice now, once from Athena when she came as the form of Mentes, and now from Menelaus, he's learned that his father's alive. Um, on page 75, just quickly. Um, Old man of the sea's daughter tells Menelaus how to capture her father, and she says he will take on these different shapes. Remember, this is an image of the sea. He, he takes on different forms, because that's what all, men, what all things come from. It's formless, but it takes on different forms. So the sea, in some sense, is what's irrational, without form. Um, she tells him what to do to, to crawl inside of these seal skins and hide, and when he comes to catch him, when they get inside, Menelaus says, that was a that was the most awful ambush for the pernicious smell of those seals, that's about line 440. But finally the old man comes and they capture, 4, 455, then he too lay down among us, we with a cry sprang up and rushed upon him, locking him in our arms, but the old man did not forget the subtlety of his arts. First he turned into a great bearded lion, then a serpent, then a leopard, then a bear. And he turned fluid water to a tree, towering branches. It goes on. But when the old, but we held stiffly onto him. Every once in a while, I want to say to students, remember this, when things are getting bad and things are shifting form, hold on. Just hold on, um, because form will return. Um, But when the old man, versed in devious ways, grew weary of all this, he spoke to me, and words quieted me. And then he tells the story of what happened with Odysseus. um, I want to stop here because I want to leave some time for questioning. But before we we go on, um, um, two things quickly that I want to just throw out. We don't have time to go into them, but I want to just In Book nine, if you've read it, you, you'll know that Odysseus comes to the island of Scaria, where the Hephaestus are. The Hephaestus are a people um, close to Hephaestus. He made everything. Their, their, their city is full of art. It, it, it is full of glory and light and luminous. They dance. They sing songs. Demodocus sings. Um, at one point, the, the king will say, our ships convey men across the sea without thought, I mean, without, without oars, as if it's following thought. They are an image of people, there are two extremes here. One of them is the Phaeokians. It's really important to see this. If you read that as closely, you'll see everything they do is defined in terms of art. They're very cultivated, they're very well-mannered. N- Nausicaa is a beautiful young woman, she wants to get married, and she looks at Odysseus as if you'd be a good husband. They're full of art. The word for it in the Greek was technē, from which we get technology. And remember, their ships could go across the sea without fear of harm, um, like, like men following thoughts, ships following thoughts. They didn't even have to oar. use oars to get there. At the other extreme are the Cyclops. And when Homer first describes him, he says the two of them were next to each other, but the Falcons had to leave and move and go to Scaria because the Cyclops were so brutal. These represent the two extremes like against which were to place all the other cities. Okay? Because here we see everything idealized, and here we see everything brutal. It's going to be important to see what Odysseus has learned from all these extremes he's going to encounter. But here in the opening, in the Telemachi, we're introduced to three different cities, three different clones. If we looked at it in terms of poetry, which is going to be one of my reference points for, the, for what we do, we can say, Pylos is the poetry of the pathos of the heroic code. Every one of these cities lives in the sufferings of the past either indirectly because of the war or directly because of what's going on in the marriage. In Pylos, we've got a marriage in which the husband cannot stop talking about himself. The wife's almost not there. You could reverse it, but here, I mean, it, we've got a situation in which the husband can only talk about the heroic deeds. So he continues to live in the past, in the war. His sons grieve. Homer makes a big point about they've lost their brother. He was one of the Antiochus. By the way, he was the one who was in the chariot race that beat out Menelaus. Mm. He's, when I, I remember the first time I read this book and, and learned that Antiochus was killed. And I was shocked. And It's the way we hear you know, news that somebody we know is... Because Homer doesn't say that in the Iliad. But he died. He was killed. So they live in the grief of the past, okay? This is the pathos of a heroic code, looking back to heroic things. When we get to Sparta, we're in the poetry, the pathos of sufficiency. Everything that um, Telemachus and Pisistratus experience here is full of splendor and wonder. It's a sufficiency. They have everything they want, but they can't escape from the wounds of the past. Helen's answer to it is to take drugs, an adultery occurred, they live with the wounds, when, when strangers come up they're guarded, remember when Pisistratus and Telemachus arrive, they're, they're very guarded about who's approaching them. So, in these three cities we've got three different families, three different marriages, showing us something about something wrong at home. This is under the honor code, this is under, this is like people who are wealthy, as if wealth were gonna make people happy. And Homer makes it clear that that's not so. And this is as if heroism is gonna make somebody happy, that's not so. So Homer's exploring these different cities. And here, the father's not home. And all of the sons who've grown up without fathers are tearing Penelope's house apart. And Telemachus as a young boy is having to grow up with all of this and learn to deal with it. So the opening of the Iliad presents all these problems in a marriage, and the question is where are we going? So what we're facing here is a lot like what we experienced in the Iliad, that there's this great disorder, remember in Medius race, there's this great disorder, it's the ninth and a half year, what's gonna happen? The book is gonna go on to answer it just the way Homer does in the Iliad. So let me let me stop here. This is a record. Fred, this is for you.
2: Actually, you answered my
0: question. Oh, I don't believe. Really, come on, what was it? You to,
2: well, no. Well, you know, I, 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 you were talking about the importance of language and yeah. how, how important it was for uh, this is to develop further his ability to use language. I've read this poem before, and I almost I almost get kind of a different impression of it the first time I, I read it. It was almost like somehow man belittles nature by virtue of trying to put words to it that you can almost lose the appreciation of what is really there yeah. because of I our f- inability to really put words to something that was never really intended to yeah to be described. To I be think that's a little bit. But I, think I, know that, I I know where you're trying to go. With, yeah, with the with the,
0: word I think, and the language part. Yeah, I think I don't think I don't think the poem bears out belittle. I but just, it was yeah, a word. But that. but what you're saying is so true in this sense. I mean, wait. Let me let me. He's praising words because he makes it clear. Um, because if we don't have them, we see less. I mean, he makes that clear in the in the third stanza. See a red stone is less than seen as jasper metaphor. Cousin of the flint of the Kiowa, carved is there. To, to be able to name them helps us to see more than we could without them. So words are crucial. Um, although in the second one he says, you know, the danger is we can transform it into something that's not. But to name is to know and remember. That's a bald statement. I mean, that's a real assertion. But the, at the end, there's something close to what you're talking about it, I think it's a really good point. The daylight needs no praise and yet we praise it always. Greater than ourselves and all the airy words we summon so that um, there's some sense in which however important words are, and they are for him, he's a poet, It's what he lives by. He has some sense that there's something greater than the words. He calls it being. In the um, The world does not need words, it articulates itself the stones on the path are no less real. The fluent leaves speak only the dialect of pure being. That each thing has its own being and it speaks itself. So the things are going to go on whether we have words or not. But words do help us. I mean, he, he makes that clear. But at the same time, he also makes it clear that there's something greater that we express um, through our praise and our gratitude. You know, this the being of things that's larger, greater than anything we can do with words. It's interesting. Can we praise without words? I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to open that up too much, but. Um, well, in a
1: way, Odysseus, by telling his tale, he has to use the words. He goes through them. It teaches him, but it isn't a thing that, is, that he's learning.
0: I mean, it. it but he can't learn it without it. He can't learn it without the yeah. words. But, but it's a process through which he's yeah. doing the learning. It's not the thing he's learning. So mm-hmm.
1: But he can't do there. it
0: without words. It's so clear. We're going to see that in the middle when we look at the archetypes. That the claim that I'm going to make next week, I'm sort of letting the cat out of the bag here, but that he, through words, he's he's making an audience and the readers. I mean, Homer's doing it for his listeners, for us. is. He's helping us, he's using visible images, words, that give us a visible image to see invisible things. Without the words, nobody else in the book is going to see them. Nobody from the Iliad, no men, Achilles, not, not anybody is going to see those. So, we, the, us, we as readers are going to learn to see things through his words that we wouldn't have seen without them.
2: I guess that's where I ultimately got to is something of a symbiosis in a sense that the very fact that it's greater than anything that we can put words to, the fact that we keep trying helps us gain a better appreciation yeah. for what was yeah. what, what, what's really there. It's
0: a good way of putting it. I mean, I just to need to add to that because I think that was a really good description of, if we think that there's a correlation between words and the word, the Jacques Maritain says a number of times and I think it's important um, mystery always has to do with something that's knowable so the more we know about it the more we enter into that mystery the more we realize we don't know but, but, but something of what was intelligible in the mystery is revealed to us so if you take this in, in the context of words the way you just did that we use words to to penetrate to, get, to enter into this If you think about words as having their ultimate end or their source, the the beginning and the end, as the word, that there is in the word this infinite intelligibility. It's all knowable, it's light itself. And we're struggling to use words to more fully understand it, enter into it, participate in it. Um, Words have been crude. You guys were, well, right from the beginning, we've been.